I, I, I think I know where we need to go. I'm not entirely sure. But as a team, we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure out where, where we should go and what we need to do to do whatever we're supposed to do to, to make that happen. And so building that team from the start with the idea of giving them the authority and letting them know they're going to participate in decision-making have happened that that's an important part of it. The other part is, is something that I learned along the way as well. And that is the idea that having a team that's diverse is really critically important. That if you have everybody who looks like you, thinks like you, you're not going to get the best result. Welcome trust builders. I'm Sue Dyer, and this is Lead with Trust, where we explore how leaders can build their business on a foundation of trust and reap the rewards of becoming the top performer in their market. Leaders that understand how to use and leverage trust are uniquely positioned to disrupt their industry and dominate their market. Distrust of businesses and business leaders is at an all-time high. Trusted businesses must have trusted leaders and your team, your customers, and your vendors are waiting for you to step up and elevate the level of trust in your business. My hope is that this podcast can help you start your trusted leader journey. Hi, trusted leaders. This is Sue Dyer and welcome to this week's episode with Larry Eisenberg. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. It's really about a life of continuous improvement. And I just wanted to highlight some of the things that we talk about in this episode. So you'll see that Larry is an MIT graduate and decided to focus on helping society. So that's kind of been his journey. And uh, over the course of that his leadership in several large government organizations. These are these are kind of five highlights of things that he's innovated to help to birth. So the first one is changing the way that carpet was produced and manufactured so that far less water was used and so it was more in- environmentally sound. And he used his ability to leverage the procurement for a state to get the new technology in the specifications. So that's how carpets started to be produced. And then that happened worldwide. Uh, He developed a multiple state purchasing process for healthcare. And certainly that has spread too uh, and is used everywhere. Uh, He helped to develop what has become in buildings, a commissioning process. And it didn't used to happen where they tested all of the systems to make sure they all worked and everybody knew how to work them. And everybody just hoped for the best. And, uh, And then that became the norm in the industry worldwide as well. Uh, He's really a pioneer in sustainability. I think that's where his heart is. From changing light bulbs in an entire state to saving a lot of money uh, to creating net zero campuses and universities uh, where he saved enough money to maintain the entire campus. And certainly what he has done there went on and has grown to really be something that happens worldwide. And today he continues to look for the latest technologies in sustainability, primarily for buildings to help uh, society and the planet. And so it's innovation every step of the way. 
I also think that he shared some pretty interesting lessons learned. So let me just share a couple of those here for you. Uh, Both your worst and your best bosses teach you how to be a great boss. So pay attention to that. That's a good lesson. Have no fear. If the worst happens, you will deal with it. You need diversity to really be able to create a diversity of different perspectives, backgrounds, and experiences. Everyone comes to work wanting to do a good job. As a leader, fuel that motivation. When people don't fit, let them go, even if it's the boss, so they can succeed and so can the team. So I think those are some pretty great lessons from this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get to it. Well, welcome to Lead with Trust, Larry Eisenberg. It's so good to see you. Glad to be here, Sue. Well, I know that uh, we've known each other for quite a long time now, and uh, but I don't think I've ever known exactly uh, what group you hung out with at North Hollywood High School. What group were you were you the part of? <laughs> I I was um, so I was I was student leadership. I was student body president at North Hollywood High School, and. Um, and my friends were part of that, and they were all sort of bright, nerdish kind of guys. We were. That, that's I, I'm not out. surprised. I have to say that. You're surprised. I'm not surprised. <laughs> oh, not surprised. That's good. That's good. I would have. I would have been surprised if you were surprised. So yeah, no, that's that's North Hollywood High School. It was high school for me. It was really a great fun time. I really had a had a blast, and we did a lot of things. Well, that, that's so cool. I find it so interesting that you know the group we hang out with in high school really does reflect kind of who you become, or at least it reflects the kind of things that you you're going to be doing. I find it so interesting, you know, because you've gone on to lead many large organizations. And, and large, large, multi-billion dollar programs. So tell us a little bit about after you became the president of the student body, you know, and you, you headed up huh. many large organizations. Tell us a little bit about your journey. So um, I, I'm a graduate of MIT. I um, went from North Hollywood to MIT because I wanted to be an engineer. And um, when I when I got there, I realized that being a, a civil engineer would have been interesting, but not not really serving society in a broad way. And um, so I, I switched over to city planning and um, and really started pursuing the idea of city planning, urban issues, urban politics as part of that to all understand what we needed to do to create the correct kind of transition in our society uh, and to really help people and make sure everybody had a a place, opportunity to make that happen. And I, because from MIT, then I went to the School of Public Affairs to uh, to further that interest. And I, and I, and that was at University of Texas on, at Austin. And, um, and then in that, I, I went there because frankly, they paid me to go. And um, that was because I was looking at a bunch of public affairs schools and, 
at the time, the Texas legislature in honor of LBJ had created the school and was paying students to come. And uh, that was really hard to turn down for a young, poor, uh, brand new minted grad student to uh, actually get paid to go to school. So, but it also turned out to be a really great experience in multiple ways because, of course, the, the work that I did there was fascinating. But in particular, in context with leadership, I, and one of the requirements was to actually have a summer job there in a public agency. And um, they helped place you into those jobs. And I went to work for the Texas Department of Local Affairs and Development. And, um, and I worked for a, a fellow, I won't say his name because I'm going to tell you some bad things. And um, he was the worst boss I ever had. He was, he was the kind of boss who led in all the wrong ways um, by, by fear, intimidation. He had no idea what he was doing. He didn't, you know, he was a micromanager to the umpteenth degree, uh, everything bad. And that, that turned out to be a great experience because I learned how not to manage by having a boss like that. And I, 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 that is so interesting because my experience of you and watching you lead, you know, large groups is that you are the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it really gave me some perspective, you know, in, in, in terms of this issue. And so, and I'm really fascinated by your work here because I always consider myself a student of, of leadership and management to understand how it happens and how to do it right. Because once I became a manager, I consistently got feedback from my employees and others that I was the best boss they ever worked for. And, and they really enjoyed working with me and working for me. And, and it's because of things that I learned along the way to, uh, to make it a really positive, helpful environment. Not that it was some easy pushover, but on the other hand, you know, I, I challenged them. I gave them authority. I delegated to let them do their best. And, um, and I trusted them to do their best. And that, um, that resulted in, in great results, you know, that I had teams wherever I went that were spectacular, that that delivered things in a remarkable kind of way, not because of me, but because the team itself performed, you know, on all cylinders. And, and we were really able to do remarkable kind of things. So in just in terms of my journey, the so my first job out of school was working for the Wisconsin State Budget Office. And my my supervisor there was probably the best supervisor I ever had. And my very first supervisor in a real job outside of school was remarkable. And, and basically because he, he challenged me, he gave me authority, he urged me forward. I had ideas. He said, do it, you know, and he, he never limited what I was doing. And, and ultimately, of course, I thrived. I really, I got a, had a great time, loved the job, loved what he was doing. He became a lifelong friend as well. So it was, that showed me what supervision and being a boss could really be and a leader and, and make that happen. And that was terrific to have a model like that within that same organization. Ultimately he left and I got a new boss, not so good. And, and that became my pattern where I had bosses that were not as good as I desired for, for the most part. And every time I learned 
I learned from the experience of, of working with people who had flaws. And, and it became part of, and ultimately, my, my research, my studying on the issue, you know, I, I quickly, when I was in Wisconsin, I quickly started taking courses and self-improvement and looking at quality management and, and looking at Deming's work in terms of what quality management really was. And that really helped me understand the idea of how we get improvement in the workplace, improvement in the activities, improvements in our team to make that happen. I picked up Tom Peters' work as well, and which was really interesting, you know, the idea of, of um, celebrating failure, which proved to be really, really difficult. <laughs> that I, I I I took it to heart and I so when someone would make a mistake, I would I would start to say, really great. I'm really glad you made the mistake. You know? And they were terribly confused. They were really, really confused. And in some cases, really, really angry. And that was that was an education all by itself in terms of how people react, you know, and part of helping me understand how to be a better manager because when I called out so I would have regular, of course, team meetings with, you know, 20, 30 people around the table. And then I would call out a failure that we experienced. And the person who did it was really pissed off that I did that, right? That, and I quickly decided that's a bad idea, you know, that to embarrass someone in public like that, even though I thought it was a really good thing, other people didn't think it was a good thing. They, they thought it was something else. And that became a critical ingredient in my my approach going forward in terms of how to be a, a good manager that I learned that if someone made a mistake, okay, fine. You know, you acknowledge it and and help people understand that that I thought mistakes are really good. And in fact, you know, if people don't fail or fail, they don't learn. That it means that they're being too focused, too conservative in their approach. And the way that we excel and do really great things is that sometimes we make a mistake. And when we make that mistake, then, and we understand why, okay, we don't do it again. And we learn from it and we learn how to be better. And we keep getting better and better all the time. So of all these things that you've learned along the path, and I want you to share everyone kind of the places you've, you've led, but what is it that you find has helped you the most to create a high-performing team? So I, I think a couple of elements in particular. One, one I've really come to appreciate is the idea of, of team-based decision making. That the idea that whenever I, I meet a new team, I tell them I don't know all the answers. That I, I I think I know where we need to go. I'm not entirely sure, but as a team, we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure out where where we should go and what we need to do to do whatever we're supposed to do. To, to make that happen. And so building that team from the start with the idea of giving them the authority and letting them know they're going to participate in decision-making has happened that that's an important part of it. The other part is, is something that I learned along the way as well. And that is the idea that having a team that's diverse is really critically important. That if you have everybody who looks like you, thinks like you, you're not going to get the best result. And because people come from all kinds of different backgrounds and different experiences that they bring to the table. And by honoring that and encouraging that, again, we can get really good problem solving going on because 
people have had experiences in different kind of ways to make that happen. So it and it's it's a kind of thing that it's demonstrable. I've I've done for part of the part of the time as a outside activity. I taught strategic planning and management communication for the University of Phoenix, and and I did that for like five years. And and people loved my classes where I where I did that. And one of the things that I did was an exercise in in the idea of desert survival that the U.S. military had developed as a way to train people on consensus-based decision-making, and at the same time, taught them how to survive in the desert to, to do that. And, and as part of that, it ultimately boils down because you can show in a mathematical way the value of consensus-based decision-making and, and the real result. And that is, in that particular case, it's a life and death issue. If you use consensus-based decision-making, you're rescued out of the desert. If you if someone says, oh, I know all the answers, I'm going to do it, that team inevitably dies. And and it's it's because everybody brings a little bit of knowledge to the issue. And and part of the question becomes, and you know, it's something that we experience all the time in our work, is the idea someone says, I'm an expert at this or that. Well, are are they really uh, an expert? Sometimes they're really great, sometimes they're not so great. You know, and the idea that it, it makes sense to again challenge and and think about and and subject to secondary kind of review. So in my in my building work, the idea of having third party review of architectural design, because everybody makes mistakes, which is okay. But ultimately you're building a building, you want it to be perfect. And and the only way to assure that is to have Third-party review of the of the actual design. Third-party review of construction. The idea of commissioning, where we test everything to make sure it works right. And it's not because someone is doing a bad job, right? We just want to be sure we're putting everything in place we can to make sure that our goal is accomplished in the way that we want. And so the result of adding all those measures in to so the process results in excellent outcome. And yeah. and I, well, you so, know, I believe in the collective wisdom. I, I trust my life to it. Yeah. It mean it it absolutely exists. And most people don't tap into it. Well, they don't create the atmosphere that allows you to tap into it. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, how, I know you've worked mostly in government, and most people would think that trust in government is sort of an oxymoron. But, uh, you know, from your experience in leading very large government organizations, how does fear and trust play out and what how does it impact things? It's something that that got me in trouble. But I I told people from the get go when I was starting in programs that I have no fear that, you know, if something happens that is negative for me, then I'll deal with it and overcome it. But no fear. And, and so I don't want to create fear in, in the people who work with me that it's not an effective motivator. In fact, it's the opposite, of course. And, and so my, my basic approach was, and I told people, is that when someone comes to work, that they have intrinsic motivation to do good. And you need to free that motivation to do good, right? People don't come to work to do a bad job. That everybody 
whether they're angry or not or whatever, when they come to work, they want to do a good job unless, you know, they're really out to, to be negative and they want to sabotage what's going on because of some other issue. And, and I've dealt with those kind of people as well. So, you know, this idea of building a team and kumbaya and all of that is, is really something that I really believe in. But there have been occasions when I have had people working with me who could not participate effectively as part of the team just because of their own style issues that they had. And ultimately, they had to go. And in some cases, I had to fire them. In other cases, they realized their style minded on match and they had to leave. And, and they did. And then the resulting team left behind did wonderful. But sometimes you encounter people who just can't be part of that, can't have that mindset, or they really do think they know all the answers. And when you don't let them run wild, then that creates that anger, fear, and desire not to do good, just out of the idea of sabotage, and ultimately non-productive. And so... Yeah, yeah. isn't it you know, just I, true that you got to have the right people in the right seats at the right time, too? too. Uh, I know, I, I remember going to um, an award ceremony, and uh, this uh, resident engineer won... The, the, the top award for his project. And the contractor was talking about how this RE was the best we've ever had in 35 years. Of all the projects I've ever worked on, this was the best RE I've ever worked with. And they were just celebrating and having a great time. The next morning, my phone rang and a contractor had called me to talk about an RE he had that was just horrible for him. He was just the worst RE he'd ever had in his entire career, didn't know what to do, didn't know how to get around it. They were just at impasse and couldn't figure out what to do. It was the same RE. Oh, wow. <laughs> so wow. it's it's the fit. It's the fit of people. It, they, they may be extremely bright and accomplished, but they don't fit. And I don't think enough leaders really even think about that. I see so many businesses and projects that suffer because they don't fit. <laughs> and they, and nobody has the courage to say, this isn't working. Let's change it up. It isn't because somebody's bad or not good. It's, it's because they don't fit. And, and unfortunately, sometimes that person who's not right is the boss. <laughs> you and... got that right. <laughs> And and it's the boss who needs to go. And because the team really has the capability. And so it becomes one of the really tricky issues in any organization about when it's about the boss. How do you deal with that? How do you how do you get to be productive? And and ultimately the boss needs to go. Yeah. I, mean, really. I know I, I've worked on some uh some with some teams that had that problem and you know, what we had to do was create a methodology to create a ceiling for the team and someone who managed the liaison with the boss, but they created a ceiling so that they couldn't negatively impact the production of the team and, and the ability of the team to create the culture that they needed to be effective. And, and ultimately, you know, the, the boss does leave eventually because they're out of place. 
but uh, it's a it's a tricky situation for a lot of organizations. Hi, this is Sue. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I'm so excited that my new book, The Trusted Leader, is about to launch. And if it's after February 1st, 2022, then it's already out there. And so I'm so excited because for years, I've been asked to help leaders to create a high trust environment. We have worked for 35 years to go in and help leaders uh, through intervening and facilitating the development of high trust teams and businesses. And now I'm teaching leaders how to do this for yourself. And trust is so important because it's really like having your foot on the gas of your business. And in so many businesses, people are working so hard, but their foot is on the brake as well. And so you expend a lot of time, energy, resources, and you just can't get where you should or could get. And so I hope you will go and get the book now and start your trusted leader journey. You can go to www.sudico.com slash book, and you can get the book there and you can pre-order the book there, or you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or anywhere that you get your books. But I hope you'll go and get it and start reading it. I can't wait to get your feedback and to be on a trusted leader journey with you. Let's get back to the show. It is. It is. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. So I know that you've worked for, um, well, tell us about some of the organizations you've led, and then, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that experience. So on, after I left the state of Wisconsin, where I, I ran the, um, began in the budget office, um, went to their Bureau of General Services, which was is the underbelly of state government. It um, manages like the state fleet, state printing, library, um, record storage, on and on and on. And it's, it's stuff that has no glamour, but really quite critical, you know, to have the organization be successful. And, and, and of course, in that, I loved it because I learned a tremendous amount about stuff I knew nothing about. You know, like, how does a printing machine work? How do you do pre-sorting a mail? You know, and on and on as and that kind of thing. From there, I went to lead the, the state purchasing office in Wisconsin, did that for five years. And that was terrific because again, purchasing procurement for any organization, critical function, and was an opportunity to um to innovate in a really effective way. And out of the work I did. Got to change the world a couple times there, like deregulation of natural gas. We were the first major national entity that bought gas at the spot market, saved like 10 million bucks a year for the state of Wisconsin by doing that. Change specifications for how we would buy carpet. We're buying $100 million of carpet a year. And so, of course, carpet mills across the country pay attention to the $100 million customer. and. I had a professor friend who had a better way to make carpet that included the idea of reducing the amount of water you use to make the carpet, and which is a tremendous issue in those places that make carpet. And so we put that on our specs, changed the industry worldwide in terms of how carpet is made to do that, saved a huge amount of water by, by doing that. 
just because of our purchasing power that we had available. And then the idea of creating consortium with other states to share in purchasing things like pharmaceuticals, as an example, and then negotiate with those companies to do that and lower the prices for our medical programs Have that happened. So in, in that particular case, you know, it was just another example of how one can take risk and but create really positive outcome. And in that case, that was one of the greatest teams that I had, that these were highly trained people. They had been at this for a long, long time, but they never had a boss like me. And suddenly I come in and they have all these ideas about things to do. And we did them. And, and it made change in a huge way. That's so that. awesome. That's just totally so, awesome. I know, I know I met you at LACCD, Los Angeles Community College District. And uh, I went to, so just a, I'll quick close the gap. So yeah. that is that. So I went from procurement to lead the facilities office for University of Wisconsin system, where I really got back to my true calling to, to work. You know, it was really each university is a small city. And so for my city planning training, I could actually, but at the same time, it became a test bed for all these concepts that came along. So there was a professor at University of Wisconsin had this idea about, we should check the work of construction. You know, we should really test things to do that. That was the guy who invented commissioning. And, and I was the guinea pig for his ideas. And so guess cool. what? It spread around the world yes. from there. Become a norm in the industry. The idea, the idea of value engineering, that we started implementing value engineering spread across the industry as, as part of that. And not, not value engineering that's budget cutting, but value engineering that's real. My best example, we were building the new business, Granger Business School, UW-Madison, architect designed in these elevators that were, and money was no object on that project. They designed in these elevators that were coated in, in granite inside the elevator. And the value engineering team looked at it and said, if we just use a veneer instead of real stone, we're going to save a million bucks per elevator. And, and it's like, we get the same look, but we saved a million bucks per elevator and like 20 of them in the building to do that. You know, it's like, Wow, that's that's the kind of thing that makes sense. So out of that, so and then when I was there, Johnson Controls came calling, and because it, it takes me to my endpoint, Johnson Controls came calling and said, "We have this idea. If we change the lights in your buildings, the university, and put in better lights, it will save money, and we can pay for it out of the savings." I said, "That's a great idea. Let's give it a try." And so we started trying it at four buildings first. And guess what? It, it worked like crazy. Pretty soon, all 3,600 buildings I had had new lights in them. And from there, the world changed. That was the beginning of the whole energy service construction operating agreement idea. And, and out of that, a whole industry grew to, to do that. So, you know, it's because. I was willing to take a risk. We took a chance. It worked. And I had, in that case, I had support. And actually, I had the delegated authority to do it. I was the chief facilities guy. And above me were the Board of Regents. And 
they love the idea of saving money. You know, how can you go wrong? And so, boom, it, it, it won. That was, those are examples there. That, that took me from that job to Portland, Oregon, where I was chief facilities guy, one of the counties there. And they had their largest building construction program ever and needed someone who knew how to build buildings. And they also had a, a passing interest in being green. And so out of that, we, we basically built this justice complex, a, a huge jail, um, office building, other things. But at the same time, we installed all this cool renewable technology to deal support those buildings to make that happen. That gave me the basis to go to LACCD, which at the time, and still probably is one of the largest green building programs in the world. Today, it's a program that has $9 billion across nine college campuses, 450 existing buildings. We built 82 new buildings. The vast majority of them lead platinum buildings to do that. And I had the freedom to experiment, which hardly ever happens in our industry, because I could build two buildings side by side with different ideas that one could have fluorescent lights, the other could have LED, one could have high efficiency HVAC, the other, the other would have something different. And then we could measure and figure out what was the best, what really worked. And that was that was terrific to do that. And that was because of our program, the vis- visibility that we had, it turned on the state of California, the building green part of that. Once California got into it, the rest of the world got into it at the same time. You know, it was a huge, huge deal to, to make that happen. And again, it's because I had, at the time I had bosses who just said, Larry, go for it. And our board of trustees brought me in because they wanted to be the greenest program in the world, literally. That was their mission statement. And so I just want to stop built- you there and just, just for the listeners to think about that in your own business. If you have a vision of what you're trying to achieve, and even though it's like extraordinary, never been done before, I think you see a pattern here that's always pushing the envelope of what's not been done before, but there's a theme to it in that there's a collective wisdom and there's people who trust you as the leader to uh, produce what the envision is. And you don't know exactly how that's going to happen but you know it will happen. I also love the idea that you two buildings side by side, you're getting data points from each one and then you know what works. And then with that data, you take them to the next thing and the next thing, plus you share it with the industry or share it with others. And so I just think it's, uh, it can be, it can apply to any type of business, any type of situation. And and a large, these are very large, complex, multi-billion dollar efforts, but it, it can be translated to that or to, you know, something smaller and some R&D that you're doing in your business. I think it's great. I know that for LACCD, as I recall, you were able to get the net zero concepts to where, which I thought was so brilliant that, you know, for most buildings, those of you who don't aren't really into construction, 
you know, you, you can build a building, but you don't have enough money to maintain it. It costs money and operating an operating expense to maintain it. And Larry was able to take the money that they saved from creating the net zero and use that to actually operate the buildings. Now that is like a game changer. So talk about that a little bit. Um, that, that's right, Sue. And, and beyond that, you know, in organizations, they have different budget pots. And so for a university, the money to run the building is the same money that pays professors. And, and so it's the general fund. And if we save money in the general fund, it means we can hire more professors. We can pay professors more to do that. And if we've been clever about how we do the maintenance on the building, we can create longer value. So the idea of applying computer-assisted facilities management strategies that basically produce the daily maintenance work orders. And we knew because at the beginning, the, the architect and our own maintenance team figured out what the maintenance pattern needed to be to keep that building fresh and new. And then instead of doing it randomly, the computer each day spit out the work orders and said, here's what you got to do today. It's time to, to check out this motor, it's time to replace the filter, whatever the thing is to do that. And by doing that, so many organizations in, in our business get in this mode of deferred maintenance, where ultimately the solution is tear down the building because it's so crummy at that end point and build a new building. And you think about the horrible waste environmentally in terms of materials that, that are being used and thrown away. In that process, the idea of the expense involved in building a building when you don't need to as part of that, you know, it's just, it's overwhelming. The idea of building buildings in a way that's flexible so that that ultimately when the need changes, one of the things that we did, I did early on at LACD, I commissioned a group to come in and study little kids because why? Because little kids are our future customers at college, right? And and the idea of saying to the little kids, how do you feel about technology? Because our classrooms that we're going to build needed to address what their technology of the future was going to be. The, the fascinating answer that came out of that was that for those little kids at the time, when they were asked about technology, they had no idea what the, the survey people were talking about. And, and then the survey people, survey people said, like like your cell phone, um, like your computer. They said, "Oh, that's that's just like the end of my hand." You know, it's not it's not something I think about separate. It's just part of who I am. And out of that, they they coined the term the idea that these kids were native users of technology, and and so it became very clear that we had to design our buildings so that as those students age and, and came to college, our facilities were ready to accommodate their approach to learning to, to make that happen. And so, you know, we're talking about little five, six, seven-year-olds who in 10 years would be showing up on our doorstep. That's so and awesome. So, so I mean, because that, when we, I'm assuming that that is spread <clears throat> to around the industry. Uh, and I think that's, again, something that can apply to any business anywhere, who who are your customers that you're becoming? 
And are you putting in the infrastructure, systems, processes, policies that will support them as they come and as you need to flex? The flip, the flip side of that is that we asked the existing professors at the time, what did they want in their new classroom? The, the predominant answer was, could I have a blackboard? <laughs> and, so funny. And, and we said, yeah, but you know, there is new technology that we can put in instead. They said, really? And so we were faced with a whole education issue to help them understand what the future of teaching was going to be and how we could incorporate in the technology. And little did we know in terms of pandemic that, of course, that remote learning was going to be a really big thing. So if they had the ability that laptops, we could give laptops to students, you know, that that we could anticipate that issue and make that happen in that kind of way. And so it certainly has shifted everything. They, they learned universities, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I know I know now you're the principal of Ovis Partners 360. And I know you've been working on net zero and projects all over the world. Tell us a little bit about what you see worldwide with that trend and and when you go into a different country, how do you build the trust for this to really be, be accepted? So out of the LACCD work where by the time I was done there, we had, um, I determined that there were two ways to get the net zero. There was the hard way and there was the easy way. The hard way is stick in so much solar that, that basically the campus has more electricity than it needs. The, and that's hard because it takes money and it's not efficient. The better way is to think about energy efficiency first, cut down the demand for energy, then fill it with technology that can work in an effective way to make that happen. That results in cheaper buildings, better buildings, if we can think about it up front rather than do it after the fact. So. What I found in terms of going to other countries to try and help them develop ideas of the technology is that, number one, it turned out that having some white guy show up in Africa and knock on the door was not a great idea. That, that what it really took, ultimately, was the idea of working with local folks who had an interest and letting them be the one to knock on the door. And then I could support them in the background to, to make that happen. And then we, we were getting traction in terms of being able to, to get in the door, offer alternatives, educate is the major issue in terms of what, what the opportunities were. And technology and in the energy efficiency, renewable area, changing rapidly. And there's so many things coming along that I'm so excited about now in, in this area and helping people understand the potential of what some of those kind of things are to, to do that so that ultimately we can help them be successful. But the other part is that in a lot of cases, I learned things at the same time. You know, it's continuous education through your life, right? I went to Africa, went to, to Kenya, to Nairobi, and working was there with my team. And one of the guys said, Sorry, I need to stop at the pharmacy and get something. I said, okay, you know, let's, I'll come with you. We'll go in the pharmacy. 
And he went to the pharmacy, he bought something and he pulled out his phone and he paid for it with his phone. And it's like, what? How did you do that? And he said, oh, that's that's M-Pesa. That's electronic money that, that we've been using for years here. And it's like, what, <laughs> really? And and it's like, okay. And so, and, and what happened in Africa is that they've actually leapfrogged technology that that relatively few places have landlines, but cell phones are everywhere. And, and cell phones have become uh, a tool that, that folks there use on a regular basis to, to do a whole raft of things to make that happen. But it means that there are not phone lines, there are cell towers, not phone lines. And, and so realize that when we're talking about energy, so went to Nigeria, and Nigeria is a country of 180 million people, you know, two-thirds the size of the United States. And so talking with their ministers and their energy agencies and asked them, I thought, a simple question. That is, how much transmission capability do you have? And they said, oh, we have a lot. We have 8,500 megawatts of transmission capability across Nigeria. And I said, and I was like stunned because city of Los Angeles uses about 8,500 megawatts. And, and so for a country of 180 million, it's like such a lack of infrastructure. And so I started talking with them about renewable energy gave us an alternate concept, the idea that we don't need wires. I could put solar on the roof of your home, stick on a battery in your garage or on the wall, and I could put a remote meter on your wall and and basically, we'll pay for the panel, the battery, and all of that. You pay for what the meter says. You use electricity. And, and now we can electrify every single building in Nigeria to do that. But that has not happened because it's not what they were used to. They thought they need to put wires everywhere. And, and, just, and it's still... <laughs> It's an opportunity. It's an idea, a design that that will work. And yet, we're still trapped in in the old way of doing things. Isn't and so that, that the becomes everywhere? It, yeah, that's that's a perfect example of the paradigms that we have. You know, the the past predicting the future, even though yeah, technology. Yeah, is, I think the average doesn't it take yeah, about twenty years for technology to actually be accepted in most time, most of the time? Yeah, I know there are issues in frustration that I've seen in Africa elsewhere is that the the leadership, and I'm not going to cast a, a uniform net, but the, the leadership for many organizations, governments, and so on, they've, they've gotten involved in a deep web of, of corruption and, and expect bribes uh, for their work. And when they get in office, it's an opportunity to enrich themselves to, yeah. to do that. And it's so counterproductive to the welfare of their citizens to, to do that. Because then real projects like the kind we're talking about can't happen. Yeah, and that, that, that's and so sad. So, you see that in, in pockets everywhere. Yeah. I, I and, always say you know, that uh, collaboration, trust cannot overcome mental illness or people that are just, you know, corruption. It's just, it can't overcome it. 
Um, yeah, and it, it doesn't, it's not, you're right. And it's not limited to Africa. And it's, it's a general issue of management that in many cases, you know, the, the boss, the really big boss can be paid a fortune. And which I also think is, is problematic when you, you look at the, the wealth disparity that we have just in the United States. It's a big issue when we have homeless people all over the place uh, and we have people who are making um, $8 million a minute. You know, it's, or it's actually the opposite. Eight minutes, a million dollars. I just was watching a news report, Jeff Bezos. They said, all the story has gone on. Jeff Bezos has made a million dollars, you know, and it's like eight minutes. It's like, what? And why is that a good idea yeah. to, to do that? You know, and and so it's something that in a more broad way, you know, in terms of thinking about management, we need to think about, again, the, the issues of equity, diversity, and, and how we support the broad population and deal with these issues when we clearly have the capability. And at some point, that, that change will happen. And it's going to require really talented managers, but also people willing to take a risk. And in, in my career, it's for me, it's been a lot about risk-taking and the idea that I've been lucky to have the support or at least the authority to, to take risk and, and be successful. And through my, through my career in these places that I've um, worked and spent huge amounts of other people's money, that, that I've never failed. You know, I've never failed in, in that kind of way. I've delivered what I'm supposed to deliver. And the result has been really, really great. And really, in as I say, a lot of cases, earth-changing. Not, not to say that, that I haven't failed and made some huge mistakes in my career. A very quick story about the largest personal mistake I ever made. And because it's a, a great management story. So when I was a little kid working in the budget office in Wisconsin, my first supervisory job, I was in charge of the technical parts of the budget process and assembling the actual budget sheets, like adding the numbers up and saying what the total budget was going to be and where the money would come from, how much we we're going to spend area by area. And the very first time I did that, I did it. And I thought, wow, I did it. Well, look at this. And I was working directly at that time with Governor Lee Dreyfus and, and supporting him in, in his efforts. And he was a change-oriented governor in Wisconsin. And I went to Governor Dreyfus and I briefed him on, on my work. And I said, Governor, we're ready to present the budget. The numbers are really, really good. You're going to actually have some surplus and we're going to make decisions about how to spend that surplus. And, and he's like, wow, Larry, this is really great. I'm, I'm really happy about it. Thanks and all that. I went back to my office, looked at the numbers and realized I had left out a huge chunk of the budget. And it was it was $300 million error of putting together this $4 billion budget. And I was like, oh my God. And I just told the governor how great it was. And I had to go tell him, in fact, Governor, we don't have enough money. We're going to need to do cutbacks. It's the opposite of what I told you. And, and I went to the governor and said, Governor, I'm deeply sorry. I made a huge mistake. And he said, okay, what is it? And I told him. He said, 
Larry, the really important thing is that you identified the mistake, you came and told me about it, and now we can figure out how to deal with it. And I'm so glad that you were honest, didn't try and cover it up to do that. And I think, and he said, I think you do a great job. And I just made a $300 million mistake. <laughs> I, think that, like, I think that's a great story and great lesson for all of us to learn and for us to end our conversation today. It's just, that's great. So everybody go out there and make your mistakes, but own up to them. <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Larry, for being a guest. And uh, how can people find out about Ovis Partners 360? Ovis part, O-V-U-S Partners 360.com. Okay. We'll put it in the show notes too. So everybody can find you. I want Excellent. to thank you so great much. Show. Pleasure Thank you to talk so, with you. so much. I appreciate it. Hey, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Lead with Trust. And that wherever you're listening to this podcast, you will subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, send it to someone who you think can really use this message that you got today. And also, please leave us a review. You know, your honest review wherever you listen to your podcasts would be much appreciated. And of course, the more reviews we get, the better they are, the better for the podcast. I'm truly on a mission to get more and more people to understand that trust is the essential element. So I hope you'll be part of that. You know, this show really exists to help you leaders to build your business on a foundation of trust so that you can reap the rewards of becoming that top performer in your market. I see over and over where no one can possibly reach the levels of those people that understand how to build a high trust culture in their business. Now today, if you're really curious about starting your trusted leader journey, you can get started right away if you just take the free trusted leader profile and you can learn where you fall along the trusted leader continuum. And this really can unlock your confidence on where you are and what you need to do. It's very specific on what you can do. Gives you a snapshot of your leadership style. So if you want to take that, just go to www.sudyco.com and then forward slash profile and you will get immediate access to the Trusted Leader Profile. Once again, that is www.sudyco.com forward slash profile. All right, that's a wrap. I just can't wait to hang out with you again on our next episode.